Well, the last couple of weeks we've talked about uh, Jesus encountering Pharisees. Uh, we dealt with one where, remember, he met uh, Levi and Matthew, and Matthew found, well, the Lord found him, and he, he made a, a relationship with Christ, and then he planned a party, and the Pharisees got upset, started talking about him. Then we looked at the story uh, where I think a Pharisee had invited Jesus to eat, and it was an honest invitation to, to understand who he was. And then that woman of the city showed up, and really things went crazy in the, in the moment. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 14. There's a lot of verses here. Uh, I promise we'll get out uh, in time for the Cowboys today. Oh, that was hard. I'm sorry. <laughs> we won't even talk about saints at all, okay? But we come to a place where Jesus... Uh, has been invited to a home for what we would call Sunday dinner. Uh, in the old days, they would invite the preacher over for Sunday lunch because he was a traveling preacher, and they would have a meal and feed him, and then he would go on to the next place he was going. In that day, most of the synagogues in the smaller communities didn't have a regular speaker. They would engage one-time, one-off speakers. The, and so the, the guy who was in charge of the synagogue, the facility, and the place would, would invite individuals to speak. And by this point in Luke, Jesus' reputation is rising. People are beginning to hear of his amazing miracles that he's done, his teaching, the words he shared. Uh, they hear he's kind of a little radical, maybe thinking he might be the son of God and those kind of things. And so they've been, uh, this opportunity came for Jesus to speak at this particular synagogue. And so they lined him up. Now they wouldn't have had Sunday lunch. The Sabbath is on Saturday, guys, and it starts on Friday night at sunset. So this was probably Friday evening after the service at the synagogue at the ruler of the synagogue's house, the guy who was in charge of that particular location, if you will. And we find that Jesus is about to get set up. You ever been set up before? Invited to a meeting? You think it's a meeting of one thing, and then you find out when you get there it's a whole different direction, and they're going to go in a way that they're trying to trip you up or try to set you up for failure? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but here, Jesus, that's what he's facing. So the attitude of the Pharisees has gone from kind of mocking to uh, inquisitive to, in this story, they're out to get him. Look at verse 1 in chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the, of the Pharisees, catch this sentence, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. We'll talk about that in a second. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then Jesus took the man who was Infirm and healed him and sent him away. And he said to the rest, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So as the scene opens, we, we find Jesus is at this house of the ruler of the Pharisees. They are invited for a meal. Now, we typically think of a meal like that as kind of a cool experience. We will go, and, and many times when we're invited to someone's house, what's the first thing you ask them? What can I bring? That's not how it worked in the ancient world of Judea. In that day, if you were having a feast at your home, the host family provided everything for that meal. Ladies, you know what that meant. He didn't do anything and you did it all, right? They were invited to those places and the host would provide 
the entire meal, the whole setup. But what was going on here is this local synagogue leader who has arranged for Jesus to speak has, has set a trap for Jesus. They're working to get him to say something so they can discount him. So they can listen to his words and go, yeah, you're not who you say you are. Yeah, you're not what you think you are. You're not the Messiah. You're not this. You're you're not that. And so they're watching him carefully. You know, it's kind of like when the future son-in-law comes to your house. Y'all with me? We met our future son-in-law long before there was an item going on. And he seemed like an okay guy, a little, little goofy, but not bad, you know. But he wasn't a potential family member. You know what I'm saying? And, and then as things progressed and we get the, the word that they're dating, and we think, oh, he could be. And then he finally came to our home for a visit. And Daddy was giving him the look. Y'all with me? Seeing how he treated my girl. Seeing how he treated my family. How he took care of things. That's the environment into which Jesus walks. Is someone watching him with the idea of how can I discount him? How can I bark him off my list? How can I say he doesn't fit my family, my situation? Now, into the mix of that day, we find there's an interesting character that showed up. When Jesus, in Jesus' day, when you had a party like this, you invited those people, since you were the one providing this meal, you would invite him so that he would say at his party, Come eat at my house, and you'd get a free meal out of the deal. So it was very much, uh, the, the guest list was very much slanted towards those who could could scratch your back. You, I'll scratch yours, you scratch mine. That's the thought. I need you to catch that because in this passage, it's very important to understand what's going on there in the situation. But into this moment, in that place is a guy with dropsy. And we're all going, what in the world is dropsy? I had to do a little research. I didn't know for sure. According to most scholars, it was a liver disease whereby um, a person's body would retain excess fluid. And in those days, they didn't have the medicines you could take to get the fluids off the body. And so it could become a point where you you would be very thirsty, but you would also be very wet, and you would be drowning while you're dying of thirst. What a terrible disease to have. But this guy was invited to the meal, and Jesus looks over and sees him and goes, "Huh, the jig's up. They're trying to set up something here. And sure enough, right off the bat, here they go. They, they ask him this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, I think Jesus has already kind of figured it out, what's going on. And he looks at them because his question, if, if he answers the question directly, if he said it was lawful, then they'd say, ah, you're not following the law. Remember, we have the rules about the rules the laws about the laws that tell you what you can and can't do every Sabbath day, and you would be breaking those. Those were man-made rules, but they were their rules nonetheless. And if he said it was unlawful, they'd go, oh, so you don't care about people, huh? How do you answer that question? You're not going to win either way you go. So they remained silent. Did you notice how quickly the healing happened in that story? It was like, boom, he healed, boom, done. It's not, I mean, if you read it fast, you don't even see it. Jesus healed him and then said, you know, buddy, you probably ought to leave because it's about to get ugly. That's my paraphrase. Y'all with me? But that's the situation. And he sends the man out. And then Jesus asked that second question. He's trying to get them to take a position, which they wouldn't do because they would look foolish. The tension in the room is already rising. And we're only into six verses. 
of the passage. Look at the second part of the story, verses 7 to 11. Now he told a parable, Jesus did, to those who invited. And when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give up your seat, give up your place to this person, and then you will begin to take with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So with the man healed of dropsy and gotten to get out of the room, Jesus notices the next thing about the moment, he looks around and says, hmm, look how they choose their seats. This morning you came into this building and you chose a seat. Now, I'm a pretty sharp guy. You know how, can I know, how come I know that? Because you're sitting down in a seat. You know, with me? But some of you said, oh, I never sit toward the front. And some of you said, oh, I'd never sit toward the back because it gets distracting in the back. I heard that comment this morning. That was interesting to tie in this morning. But here's the thing is we choose our seats. But in that day, it was very important to not sit at the back. No offense, guys. The important seats were down front, right next to the host. That way you had his ear. You could have a conversation and make sure he remembered you so that when the next time comes around, you invited him. He goes, oh, yeah, he was at my party, and he's called me to come to his fellowship, and I want to be a part of that. And so what he does in this moment is the place of prominence was the place where you can make impact. But Jesus shares a parable about being invited to a feast, a wedding feast, by the way. They doesn't know who else has been invited to the party, to the fellowship. He says, if you snatch the prime seats, but somebody who's higher on the pecking order shows up, you might get asked to vacate your seat. And by the time that happens, you might find that the only seats left are the ones far away from the host. Not a desirable place in their day and age. The desirable seats were with the host He said, a better approach is this. Take the less desirable seat so that when the host comes in and says, hey, what are you doing all the way back there? You come and sit here with me. And your honor is satisfied and you're lifted up in the moment, not moved down in a moment. And Jesus gives an interpretation of what he means by this. I love when he does that because it makes it real easy to understand. He says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be will be exalted. What he's talking about is the right way to approach life. Not coming into life with an approach that says, I'm here. Y'all are so blessed to have me. But an approach that comes in and says, let me just wait over here to the side and see what the master has for me. So you're going, that sounds weird. Some of you say, that's what I do. I don't want to be a noticed. I don't want to be in the front. I don't want to be on the front line. I want to be in the back row. I want to be out of the place, out of the side of mind. But these choices that they're doing, these gatherings produced a lot of pride in the lives of the people who were there. They were there jockeying for position, making sure people knew who they were so that they get influence on the host and they could be important in the moment. Those things sickened Jesus. And he tells them that. And then he turns to the host. Look at verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a a banquet, 
Don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. That marks off most of our guest list, doesn't it? Lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. Remember the setting of those meetings were such that you went hoping to get invite, be able to invite others and you wanted to have that reciprocity between the two of you. With me? He says that. But when you give a feast, watch this. He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you were repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus turns to the host of the event with this surprising call. He says, don't invite people looking for a reciprocal invitation to someone else's home. But invite those people who cannot do that for you. Do the things for those who can't do for themselves, not those who can do something for you. He says, for when we invite those who host a similar banquet, we find ourselves operating from a very selfish motive. I'm doing this so I get something. Not I'm doing this so I can give something. He says, invite the down and out. Invite the damaged goods. Invite those who don't ever get invited to those events. I think the big idea that Jesus is trying to communicate is we need to do life in such a way that we're not out to get something for us. But we're living our lives to bless others. Boy, that's a tough call, isn't it? We like to get stuff for us. We like to be noticed. We like to be blessed. We like to get. But he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then with the tension in the room... Can you imagine? All of a sudden, one of the guys sitting at the table, and ladies, it was always guys at those tables. He burst out with a big, Amen, brother! You're going, I don't remember reading that in the text. Well, that's a Patrick Frere a paraphrase, but watch. What happens? When one of those reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. With his most spiritual voice, I'm sure. There's always somebody like that in a moment, isn't there? When things get tense, somebody throws in something humorous to try to break it up. And really the words there are good words. They're not bad words. I just don't think it was the right moment. Because we follow that real quickly with this. However, but Jesus said to him, a man once had once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, Come, now everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. And therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things, reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, What you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out of the highways, the hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. 
For I tell you, and the, the you in the Greek there is plural, so I added the little word there, all, because he's, we're talking to everybody. He says, I tell you all, none of these men or those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So after that hearty but hollow amen, Jesus speaks yet another parable to the same setting. We're still at the Pharisee's the leader, the head of the Pharisees' home. We're still at the meal at the dinner table. We're still in that setting when all this happens. The host in this parable has worked for days, I would suspect weeks, preparing a major banquet. And the day finally came for the banquet to happen. And so he takes his servant and says, go and tell those who've been invited to what? Come on, it's time. And they hear the word, it's time to go. Did you see what they did? They pulled the excuses. One, uh, they gave excuse after excuse. One gave, I think, a hokey excuse. He says, well, I bought a field and I need to go look at it. How many of you have bought property without having taken a look at it first? Very few of us, right? We made an offer on a house one time when we moved to the Gulf Coast because the market was so crazy without actually walking through the house. But we put in the contract a seven-day right to back out to give us time to get there. And the next thing I did was to book an airline ticket to fly to Beaumont, Texas, to go walk through that house to see if it was going to fit our house, our family or not. I've never done that before since. That was the weirdest experience. We don't do stuff like that. And yet here this guy's going, i got to go check out a pasture I bought. I hadn't looked at it yet. It may be bad. Really? How about the next guy? He spends a yard. I bought five pair of oxen, five yoke of oxen. I don't know if they are any good or not. They may be on their death door. They could be pitiful. i got to go check them out and see if they're any good. Seriously? You bought oxen without having taken a look at them? Not looked at the teeth? Not looked at the animal? Not looked at the hindquarters? Not looked at anything? Come on, really? And then the third guy. Oh, ladies. Can you believe a man would do that with his wife? Oh, I just got married, and she won't let me go. Seriously? I can't come. What a terrible excuse. So, with this moment set, they go, look, we're going to fill this place up one way or the other. So they go out and they call in the poor, the lame, the sick. Aren't y'all glad that Jesus calls the poor, the lame, and the sick? I am. Because without Christ, I was poor, lame, and sick. But they came and it still wasn't full. He says, go out to the roads, the highways, the byways, as the King James translates, and go get those people who will come and tell them to come on. And they get more in the place. And in the end, those who made excuses were left out. Though they had been the ones invited in the beginning. They spurn the master sorrowfully. They reject him. So what do we do with a story like this? You know, I, I want to tell you, most of us have read that story at least once in our life, if not 22 times, right? It's not a fresh story. But I want you to hear this, because we're talking about fellowship, this series. And, and look at what happens in this story. The first thing I want you to see is this, that self-interest damages fellowship. If you look at the trap that Jesus was uh, set, was set for Jesus, we see a man who was 
seriously ill being used as a pawn to try to trap Jesus. Can you imagine the moment how that guy felt? Can you imagine the situation into which they walked? The Pharisees hoped that by placing him in the Sabbath gathering, they could get Jesus to break the rules. And if Jesus broke their rules, which, by the way, were man-made rules, they could prove he was nothing more than a good teacher. But working from a position of self-interest, they damaged their relationship with that man, with Jesus, and I think with each other because of what they did. Their focus was on what they could get, not on what they could give. And when we enter into relationships with other people with that in mind, this is what I'm going to get, we will damage fellowship every single time. Biblical fellowship to develop has to come from a moment when we move from a self-centered approach to life that says, I'm here for you, not you're here for me. Where I say, I'm here to serve you, to care for you, to love you, to bless you, to do the best I can for you. This is some pretty tough stuff to do, isn't it? And yet that's what I think Christ calls us to do. Self-interest are natural. Self-interest is expected. Would you all agree with that? We, we, that's how we are wired. But that's the world's way of thinking. In Christ, we're called to something greater. We're called to a greater, higher calling than to go, well, I'm out to get me, take care of me, get mine. I'm here to make sure you get yours. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth about this when he said this, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let's be honest, that's a foreign concept for most of us, isn't it? We want to get what we want. And if it means running over somebody to get it, we're willing to do it. Think about the destabilization of fellowship when that happens. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. He'll lead us in better ways. Second thing I want you to see is this. and It's one I think we sometimes forget in the modern church. God calls all. And if I had more room on that screen, I would have put, but sadly, not all answer. Do you believe Christ died on the cross for everyone? I do. With all my heart. But I also understand and believe the truth that not everyone will answer his call. Many, if not most, will reject his call. Many, if not most, will say, I don't want what you have. I'm good. I'll take care of myself. I think this parable he shares of foreshadowing the banquet in heaven when all the saints of God will be in attendance kind of gives us a picture here. What, what we like to do as humans is this. We'd like to believe somehow we can merit our salvation by what we do. We think we can be good enough. We think we can be generous enough. We can think we can be religious enough. We go to church on a day when it's 22 degrees at the house when we leave, and then God will go, oh, you're a good, good, good person. Can I tell you something? You didn't get a brownie point with God today for showing up. You're going, huh? I thought we were supposed to go to church so we can be Christians. Oh, no. Dear friends, it's the other way around. When we're really in a relationship with Christ, y'all with me? We want to be in church. We want to be with God's people. We want to not forsake the assembling of the other of the saints together. We want to gather together with believers in small groups and study God's word. We want to come together and sing songs and worship. We want to look at God's word and let him speak into our hearts. We want him to transform us, not so that we can become saved, but because we are saved. And when we operate from that foundation, my friends, fellowship happens. Because we're not looking to go, well, I'm hoping they'll come and listen to my Bible study. 
I, can I tell you, y'all don't, ten years, ten, I can be honest with you about ten years, can I? I hope I have been before. I, I don't really enjoy getting up in front of people and talking. I'd rather be in a room somewhere studying, researching. But God called me to do this. So we let him use us to do that. But here's the thing, my friends. If I come into this approach with, I hope they're going to come and listen to me, I got it wrong. My prayer is that you're walking with Christ and you want to come together with other believers and worship him. And I get to be just a little part of that. God calls all, but not all answer. In our world, there's a lot of different ways people think they can get to heaven. They, they say, well, if I, I do enough good works, I'll be good. I'm going to be religious enough, I can be good. Uh, some other road, maybe that, it, but I don't want to follow Christ. I just want to get what I want. Far too much of religion in the world is based on people doing what they need to do to gain what God has instead of we do what we do because we have Christ. It's a whole different way of looking at it. Over in the Gospel of John, we read a passage where John the Baptist pointed others to Jesus, the Messiah, to find salvation. And here's what he said, whoever believes in the Son. Let me just stop right there. Let me remind you, the Greek language does not have a, a verb form in English for the word that's used here. The word is pistueo. There's a couple different endings depending on the use in the language. But the word is, is faith. And so if you've translated this literally, no matter what translation you look at, it would say this, whoever faiths in the Son. That's not good English, is it? But can I tell you something? That's amazing theology. Because it takes faith in Jesus alone to find eternal life. Whoever faiths in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. People of the party today were more interested in getting ahead. They were more interested in getting invite, invites to that party so they could figure out who's going to be at the next party and make the next thing happen, and they wanted to get these things. And they refused to obey the words of Jesus. And Jesus told them as much in that second parable. Some of you who are religious will be shut out at the end of the time. Wow. One last thought, and I'll wrap up. Following Jesus transforms us. There's a truth that we can discover from this passage centered on those who answered the call to the banquet. They were changed. Some of us have walked with the Lord so long that we don't notice or remember what we were like before Christ. If we forget our lostness without Jesus. The call had been issued to the religious folks, those who were on the inside. But when the day came, they had every excuse in the book. The call then was shared with who? The sick, the poor, the lame, the infirm. Praise God. And then it was shared with what? Those on the streets. Get them to come. Get them to be a part of the kingdom of God. And their lives went from one direction to an entirely new direction. Friends, that's the definition of change and transformation in Christ. We go from being self-centered, self-focused, self to saying, God, whatever you want for me, that's where I want to be. Paul described it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. 
The old passed away. The new, behold, the new has come. We are not like we were before. If you've been following the Lord Jesus for 10, 15, 20 years and you're just like you were 10, 15, 20 years ago, you may want to look inside and see what's missing. It may not be that you're lost. It may be that your commitment has waned and and, and wavered and you're not listening to his voice any longer. For some, there's been no change because there's no conversion. Until you know Christ, until you meet him personally, the new creation doesn't come into your life. See, when we do give our life to him, we begin to set aside our agenda for his agenda. We put aside our approach for his approach. We put away our will, get this, for God's will. This morning, the invitation is simply this. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. That's the place to start. My my suspicion is that many of you have already had that experience. And you remember when you trusted Christ. Praise God. But your heart has become cold. Because you said, well, God wants that, but I'm doing this. God wants me to be here, but I'm going to do this. God wants me to be this way, but I'm doing this. When we do that, we shut down the Holy Spirit's leading and working in our lives, sometimes to the point where we can't even sense his voice much anymore because we've built a wall between us and God. Maybe you need to let that wall fall today. Maybe you need to set that aside and say, God, I want to hear your voice new today. I want it to be new every morning. I want to hear your leading in my life. That's a great way to live. And when we do that, fellowship begins to grow and thrive among us. And God is blessed. Father, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to come together and to sing and to worship and to pray. But Father, we didn't come to do all that so we can get saved. We came because we are saved, because we are following you. And our hearts call us to be together as your people. Father, we know that this is not the only place that can happen, but Father, this is the place that we've chosen for it to happen based on your leading in our lives. We pray your hand on these next few moments as we respond, whether publicly or privately, whatever God, your spirit leads, we want you to be glorified in these moments in Jesus' name.